Chapter 1, Part 1 of The Life of Cicero, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume 1, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 1, Introduction, Part 1. I am conscious of a certain audacity in thus attempting to give a further life of Cicero, which I feel I may probably fail in justifying by any new information, and on this account the enterprise, though it has been long considered, has been postponed, so that it may be left for those who come after me to burn or publish as they may think proper, or, should it appear during my life, I may have become callous through age to criticism." The project of my work was anterior to the life by Mr. Forsyth, and was first suggested to me as I was reviewing the earlier volumes of Dean Merivale's History of the Romans Under the Empire. In an article on the Dean's work, prepared for one of the magazines of the day, I inserted an apology for the character of Cicero, which was found to be too long as an episode, and was discarded by me, not without regret. From that time the subject has grown in my estimation, till it has reached its present dimensions. I may say with truth that my book has sprung from love of the man, and from a heartfelt admiration of his virtues and his conduct, as well as of his gifts. I must acknowledge that in discussing his character with men of letters, as I have been prone to do, I have found none quite to agree with me. His intellect they have admitted, and his industry, but his patriotism they have doubted, his sincerity they have disputed, and his courage they have denied. It might have become me to have been silenced by their verdict, but I have rather been instigated to appeal to the public, and to ask them to agree with me against my friends. It is not only that Cicero has touched all matters of interest to men, and has given a new grace to all that he has touched, that as an orator, a rhetorician, an essayist, and a correspondent he was supreme, that as a statesman he was honest, as an advocate fearless, and as a governor pure, that he was a man whose intellectual part always dominated that of the body, that in taste he was excellent, in thought both correct and enterprising, and that in language he was perfect. All this has been already so said of him by other biographers. Plutarch, who is as familiar to us as though he had been English, and Middleton, who thoroughly loved his subject, and latterly Mr. Forsyth, who has struggled to be honest to him, might have sufficed as telling us so much as that. But there was a humanity in Cicero, a something almost of Christianity, a stepping forward out of the dead intellectualities of Roman life, into moral perceptions, into natural affections, into domesticity, philanthropy, and conscious discharge of duty, which do not seem to have been as yet fully appreciated. To have loved his neighbour as himself before the teaching of Christ was much for a man to achieve. And that he did this is what I claim for Cicero, and hope to bring home to the minds of those who can find time for reading yet another, added to the constantly increasing volumes about Roman times. It has been the habit of some latter writers, who have left to Cicero his literary honours, to rob him of those which had been accorded to him as a politician. Macaulay, expressing his surprise at the fecundity of Cicero, and then passing on to the praise of the Philippics as senatorial speeches, says of him that he seems to have been at the head of the minds of the second order. We cannot judge of the classification without knowing how many of the great men of the world are to be included in the first rank. 
but Macaulay probably intended to express an opinion that Cicero was inferior because he himself had never dominated others as Marius had done, and Scylla, and Pompey, and Caesar, and Augustus. But what if Cicero was ambitious for the good of others, while these men had desired power only for themselves? Dean Merivale says that Cicero was discreet and decorous, as, with a similar sneer, another clergyman, Sidney Smith, ridiculed a Tory Prime Minister because he was true to his wife. There is nothing so open to the bitterness of a little joke as those humble virtues by which no glitter can be gained, but only the happiness of many preserved. And the Dean declares that Cicero himself was not, except once or twice, and for a, a moment only, a real power in the State. Men who usurped authority, such as those I have named, were the real powers, and it was in opposition to such usurpation that Cicero was always urgent. Mr. Forsyth, who, as I have said, strives to be impartial, tells us that the chief fault of Cicero's moral character was a want of sincerity. Absence of sincerity there was not. Deficiency of sincerity there was. Who among men has been free from such blame since history and the lives of men were first written? It will be my object to show that though less than godlike in that gift, by comparison with other men around him, he was sincere, as he was also self-denying, which, if the two virtues be well examined, will indicate the same phase of character. But of all modern writers, Mr. Froude has been the hardest to Cicero. His sketch of the life of Caesar is one prolonged censure on that of Cicero. Our historian, with all that glory of language for which he is so remarkable, has covered the poor orator with obloquy. There is no period in Cicero's life so touching, I think, as that during which he was hesitating whether, in the service of the Republic, it did or did not behoove him to join Pompey before the Battle of Pharsalia. At this time he wrote to his friend Atticus various letters full of agonising doubts as to what was demanded from him by his duty to his country, by his friendship for Pompey, by loyalty to his party, and by his own dignity. As to a passage in one of those, Mr. Froude says that Cicero had lately spoken of Caesar's continuance in life as a disgrace to the state. It has been seen also that he had long thought of assassination as the readiest means of ending it, says Mr. Froude. The it has been seen refers to a statement made a few pages earlier in which he translates certain words written by Cicero to Atticus. He considers it a disgrace to them that Caesar was alive. That is his translation. And in his indignation he puts other words, as it were, into the mouth of his literary brother of two thousand years before. Why did not somebody kill him? The Latin words themselves are added in a note, cum vivere ipsum turpe sit nobis. Hot indignation has so carried the translator away that he has missed the very sense of Cicero's language. When even to draw the breath of life at such a time is a disgrace to us, that is what Cicero meant. Mr. Froude, in a preceding passage, gives us another passage from a letter to Atticus. Caesar was mortal. So much is an intended translation. Then Mr. Froude tells us how Cicero had hailed Caesar's eventual murder with rapture, and goes on to say, We read the words with sorrow, and yet with pity. But Cicero had never dreamed of Caesar's murder. The words of the passage are as follows, Hunc primum mortalem esse, 
de inde etiam multis modis extingui posse cogitabam. I bethought myself in the first place that this man was mortal, and then that there were a hundred ways in which he might be put on one side. All the latter authorities have, I believe, supposed the hunk, or this man, to be Pompey. I should say that this was proved by the gist of the whole letter, one of the most interesting that was ever written as telling the workings of a great man's mind at a peculiar crisis of his life, did I not know that former learned editors have supposed Caesar to have been meant. But whether Caesar or Pompey, there is nothing in it to do with murder. It is a question, Cicero is saying to his friend, of the stability of the Republic. When a matter so great is considered, how is a man to trouble himself as to an individual who may die any day, or cease from any accident to be of weight? Cicero was speaking of the effect of this or that step on his own part. Am I, he says, for the sake of Pompey, to bring down hordes of barbarians on my own country, sacrificing the Republic for the sake of a friend who is here to-day and gone to-morrow? Or, for the sake of an enemy, if the reader thinks that the hunk refers to Caesar, the argument is the same. Am I to consider an individual when the Republic is at stake? Mr. Froude tells us that he reads the words with sorrow and yet with pity. So would everyone, I think. Sympathising with the patriot's doubts as to his leader, as to his party, and as to his country. Mr. Froude does so because he gathers from them that Cicero is premeditating the murder of Caesar. It is natural that a man should be judged out of his own mouth. A man who speaks much, and so speaks that his words shall be listened to and read, will be so judged. But it is not too much to demand that when a man's character is at stake, his own words shall be thoroughly sifted before they are used against him. The writer of the biographical notice in the Encyclopaedia Britannica on Cicero sends down to posterity a statement that in the time of the first triumvirate, when our hero was withstanding the machinations of Caesar and Pompey against the liberties of Rome, he was open to be bought. The augurship would have bought him. So pitiful, says the biographer, was the bribe to which he would have sacrificed his honour, his opinions, and the commonwealth. With no more sententious language was the character of a great man ever offered up to public scorn, and on what evidence? We should have known nothing of the bribe and the corruption, but for a few playful words in a letter from Cicero himself to Atticus. He is writing from one of his villas to his friend in Rome, and asks for news of the day. Who are to be the new consuls? Who is to have the vacant augurship? Ah, says he, they might have caught even me with that bait as he said on another occasion that he was so much in debt as to be fit for a rebel, and, as again, as I shall have to explain just now, that he was like to be called in question under the Cincian law because of a present of books. This was just at the point of his life when he was declining all offers of public service, of public service for which his soul longed, because they were made to him by Caesar. It was then that the Viginti Viratus was refused, which Quintilian mentions to his honour. It was then that he refused to be Caesar's lieutenant. It was then that he might have been forth with Caesar and Pompey and Crassus had he not felt himself bound not to serve against the Republic. And yet the biographer does not hesitate to load him with infamy because of a playful word in a letter half jocose and half pathetic to his friend. If a man's deeds be always honest, 
Surely he should not be accused of dishonesty on the strength of some light words spoken in the confidence of familiar intercourse. The light words are taken to be grave, because they meet the modern critic's eye clothed in the majesty of a dead language, and thus it comes to pass that their very meaning is misunderstood. My friend Mr. Collins speaks in his charming little volume on Cicero of quiet evasions of the Cincian law, and tells us that we are taught by Cicero's letters not to trust Cicero's words when he was in a boasting vein. What has the one thing to do with the other? He names no quiet evasions. Mr. Collins makes a surmise by which the character of Cicero for honesty is impugned, without evidence. The anonymous biographer altogether misinterprets Cicero. Mr. Frude charges Cicero with anticipation of murder, grounding his charge on words which he has not taken the trouble to understand. Cicero is accused on the strength of his own private letters. It is because we have not the private letters of other persons that they are not so accused. The courtesies of the world exact, I will not say demand, certain deviations from straightforward expression, and these are made most often in private conversations and in private correspondence. Cicero complies with the ways of the world, but his epistles are no longer private, and he is therefore subjected to charges of falsehood. It is because Cicero's letters, written altogether for privacy, have been found worthy to be made public, that such accusations have been made. When the injustice of these critics strikes me, I almost wish that Cicero's letters had not been preserved. As I have referred to the evidence of those who have, in these latter days, spoken against Cicero, I will endeavour to place before the reader the testimony of his character which was given by writers, chiefly of his own nation, who dealt with his name for the hundred and fifty years after his death, from the time of Augustus down to that of Adrian, a period much given to literature, in which the name of a politician and a man of literature would assuredly be much discussed. Readers will see in what language he was spoken of by those who came after him. I trust they will believe that if I knew of testimony on the other side of records adverse to the man, I would give them. The first passage to which I will allude does not bear Cicero's name, and it may be that I am wrong in assuming honour to Cicero from a passage in poetry, itself so famous, in which no direct allusion is made to himself. But the idea that Virgil in the following lines refers to the manner in which Cicero soothed the multitude who rose to destroy the theatre when the knights took their front seats in accordance with Otto's law does not originate with me. I give the lines as translated by Dryden, with the original in a note. As when in tumults rise the ignoble crowd, Mad are their motions and their tongues are loud, And stones and brands in rattling volleys fly, And all the rustic arms that fury can supply. If then some grave and pious man appear, They hush their noise and lend a listening ear. He soothes with sober words their angry mood, and quenches their innate desire of blood. Footnote. Virgil, Aeneid, Book 1, line 150. Ac, veluti magno in populo cum saepe coorta est, seditio saevitque animis ignobile vulgus, iamque faces et saxa volant, furor arma ministrat, tum pietate gravem ac meritis si forte virumquem conspexere, silent arectisque auribus adstant, iste regit dictis animos et pectora mulcet. End of footnote. This 
if it be not intended for a portrait of Cicero on that occasion, exactly describes his position and his success. We have a fragment of Cornelius Nepos, the biographer of the Augustan age, declaring that at Cicero's death men had to doubt whether literature or the Republic had lost the most. Livy declared of him only that he would be the best writer of Latin prose who was most like to Cicero. Valerius Paterculus, who wrote in the time of Tiberius, speaks of Cicero's achievements with the highest honour. At this period, he says, lived Marcus Cicero, who owed everything to himself, a man of altogether a new family, as distinguished for ability as he was for the purity of his life. Valerius Maximus quotes him as an example of a forgiving character. Perhaps the warmest praise ever given to him came from the pen of Pliny the Elder, from whose address to the memory of Cicero I will quote only a few words, as I shall refer to it more at length when speaking of his consulship. Hail thou, says Pliny, who first among men was called the father of your country. Marshall, in one of his distichs, tells the traveller that if he have but a book of Cicero's writing, he may fancy that he is travelling with Cicero himself. Lucan, in his bombastic verse, declares how Cicero dared to speak of peace in the camp of Pharsalia. The reader may think that Cicero should have said nothing of the kind, but Lucan mentions him with all honour. Not Tacitus, as I think, but some author whose essay De Oratoribus was written about the time of Tacitus, and whose work has come to us with the name of Tacitus, has told us of Cicero that he was a master of logic, of ethics, and of physical science. Everybody remembers the passage in Juvenal, Sed Roma parentem, Roma patrem patriae, Ciceronem liberadixit. Rome, even when she was free, declared him to be the father of his country. Even Plutarch, who generally seems to have a touch of jealousy when speaking of Cicero, declares that he verified the prediction of Plato, that every state would be delivered from its calamities, whenever power should fortunately unite with wisdom and justice in one person. The praises of Quintilian as to the man are so mixed with the admiration of the critic for the hero of letters, that I would have omitted to mention them here, were it not that they will help to declare what was the general opinion as to Cicero at the time in which it was written. He has been speaking of Demosthenes, and then goes on. Nor in regard to Cicero do I see that he ever failed in the duty of a good citizen. There is in evidence of this the splendour of his consulship, the rare integrity of his provincial administration, his refusal of office under Caesar, the firmness of his mind on the civil wars, giving way neither to hope nor fear, though these sorrows came heavily on him in his old age. On all these occasions he did the best he could for the Republic. Florus, who wrote after the Twelve Caesars in the time of Trajan and of Adrian, whose rapid summary of Roman events can hardly be called a history, tells us, in a few words, how Catiline's conspiracy was crushed by the authority of Cicero and Cato in opposition to that of Caesar. Then, when he has passed in a few short chapters over all the intervening history of the Roman Empire, he relates, in pathetic words, the death of Cicero. It was the custom in Rome to put up on the rostra the heads of those who had been slain, but now the city was not able to restrain its tears when the head of Cicero was seen there, upon the spot from which the citizens had so often listened to his words. 
such is the testimony given to this man by the writers who may be supposed to have known most of him as having been nearest to his time. They all wrote after him. Sallust, who was certainly his enemy, wrote of him in his lifetime, but never wrote in his dispraise. It is evident that public opinion forbade him to do so. Sallust is never warm in Cicero's praise, as were those subsequent authors whose words I have quoted, and has been made subject to reproach for envy for having passed too lightly over Cicero's doings and words in his account of Catiline's conspiracy. But what he did say was to Cicero's credit. Men had heard of the danger, and therefore, says Sallust, they conceived the idea of entrusting the consulship to Cicero, for before that the nobles were envious and thought that the consulship would be polluted if it were conferred on a novus homo, however distinguished. But when danger came, envy and pride had to give way. He afterward declares that Cicero made a speech against Catiline, most brilliant and at the same time useful to the Republic. This was lukewarm praise, but coming from Sallust, who would have censured if he could, it is as eloquent as any eulogy. There is extant a passage attributed to Sallust full of virulent abuse of Cicero, but no one now imagines that Sallust wrote it. It is called the Declamation of Sallust against Cicero, and bears intrinsic evidence that it was written in after years. It suited someone to forge pretended invectives between Sallust and Cicero, and is chiefly noteworthy here because it gives to Dio Cassius a foundation for the hardest of hard words he said against the orator. Dio Cassius was a Greek who wrote in the reign of Alexander Severus, more than two centuries and a half after the death of Cicero, and he no doubt speaks evil enough of our hero. What was the special cause of jealousy on his part cannot probably be now known, but the nature of his hatred may be gathered from the passage in the note which is so foul-mouthed that it can only be inserted under the veil of his own language. Footnote. Dio Cassius, Book 46, Section 18. Greek text follows. End of footnote. Among other absurdities, Dio Cassius says of Cicero that in his later days he put away a gay young wife, forty years younger than himself, in order that he might enjoy without disturbance the company of another lady, who was nearly as much older than himself as his wife was younger. Now I ask, having brought forward so strong a testimony, not, I will say, as to the character of the man, but of the estimation in which he was held by those who came shortly after him in his own country, having shown, as I profess that I have shown, that his name was always treated with singular dignity and respect, not only by the lovers of the old republic, but by the minions of the empire, having found that no charge was ever made against him, either for insincerity or cowardice or dishonesty, by those who dealt commonly with his name, am I not justified in saying that they who have in latter days accused him should have shown their authority? Their authority they have always found in his own words. It is on his own evidence against himself that they have depended, on his own evidence or, occasionally, on their own surmises." when we are told of his cowardice, because those human vacillations of his, humane as well as human, have been laid bare to us as they came quivering out of his bosom onto his fingers. He is a coward to the critics, because they have written without giving themselves time to feel the true meaning of his own words. If we had only known his acts, and not his words, 
how he stood up against the judges at the trial of Verres, with what courage he encountered the responsibility of his doings at the time of Catiline, how he joined Pompey in Macedonia from a sense of sheer duty, how he defied Antony, when to defy Antony was probable death, then we should not call him a coward. It is out of his own mouth that he is condemned. Then, surely, his words should be understood. Queen Christina says of him, in one of her maxims, that Cicero was the only coward that was capable of great actions. The Queen of Sweden, whose sentences are never worth very much, has known her history well enough to have learned that Cicero's acts were noble, but has not understood the meaning of words sufficiently to extract from Cicero's own expressions their true bearing. The bravest of us all, if he is in high place, has to doubt much before he can know what true courage will demand of him, and these doubts the man of words will express, if there be given to him an alter ego such as Cicero had in Atticus. In reference to the biography of Mr. Forsyth, I must in justice both to him and to Cicero quote one passage from the work. Let those who, like De Quincey, Mommsen and others, speak disparagingly of Cicero, and are so lavish in praise of Caesar, recollect that Caesar never was troubled by a conscience. Here it is that we find that advance almost to Christianity of which I have spoken, and that superiority of mind which makes Cicero the most fit to be loved of all the Romans. It is hard for a man, even in regard to his own private purposes, to analyse the meaning of a conscience if he put out of question all belief in a future life. Why should a man do right if it be not for a reward, here or hereafter? Why should anything be right or wrong? The Stoics tried to get over the difficulty by declaring that if a man could conquer all his personal desires, he would become, by doing so, happy, and would therefore have achieved the only end at which a man can rationally aim. The school had many scholars, but probably never a believer. The normal Greek or Roman might be deterred by the law, which means fear of punishment, or by the opinion of his neighbours, which means ignominy. He might recognise the fact that comfort would combine itself with innocence, or disease and want with lust and greed. In this there was little need of a conscience, hardly perhaps room for it. But when ambition came, with all the opportunities that chance, audacity and intellect would give, as it did to Scylla, to Caesar and to Augustus, then there was nothing to restrain the men. There was to such a man no right but his power, no wrong but opposition to it. His cruelty or his clemency might be more or less, as his conviction of the utility of this or that other weapon for dominating men might be strong with him, or there might be some variation in the flowing of the blood about his heart which might make a massacre of citizens a pleasing diversion or a painful process to him, but there was no conscience. With the man of whom we are about to speak, conscience was strong. In his sometimes doubtful wanderings after political wisdom, in those mental mazes which have been called insincerity, we shall see him, if we look well into his doings, struggling to find whether, in searching for what was his duty, he should go to this side or to that. Might he best hope a return to that state of things which he thought good for his country, by adhering to Caesar or to Pompey? we see the workings of his conscience, and as we remember that Scipio's dream of his, we feel sure that he had in truth within him a recognition of a future life. 
In discussing the character of a man, there is no course of error so fertile as the drawing of a hard and fast line. We are attracted by salient points, and seeing them clearly we jump to conclusions as though there were a lighthouse on every point by which the nature of the coast would certainly be shown to us. And so it will, if we accept the light only for so much of the shore as it illumines. But to say that a man is insincere because he has vacillated in this or the other difficulty, that he is a coward because he has feared certain dangers, that he is dishonest because he has swerved, that he is a liar because an untrue word has been traced to him, is to suppose that you know all the coast because one jutting headland has been defined to you. He who so expresses himself on a man's character is either ignorant of human nature or is in search of stones with which to pelt his enemy. He has lied! He has lied! How often in our own political contest do we hear the cry with a note of triumph? And if he have, how often has he told the truth? And if he have, how many are entitled by pure innocence in that matter to throw a stone at him? And if he have, do we not know how lies will come to the tongue of a man without thought of lying? In his stoutest efforts after the truth a man may so express himself that, when afterward he is driven to compare his recent and his former words, he shall hardly be able to say even to himself that he has not lied. It is by the tenor of a man's whole life that we must judge him, whether he be a liar or no. To expect a man to be the same at sixty as he was at thirty is to suppose that the sun at noon shall be graced with the colours which adorn its setting, and there are men whose intellects are set on so fine a pivot that a variation in the breeze of the moment which coarser minds shall not feel will carry them round with a rapidity which baffles the common eye. The man who saw his duty clearly on this side in the morning shall, before the evening come, recognise it on the other, and then again and again and yet again the vein shall go round. It may be that an instrument shall be too fine for our daily uses. We do not want a clock to strike the minutes, or a glass to tell the momentary changes in the atmosphere. It may be found that for the work of the world, the coarse work, and no work is so coarse, though none is so important, as that which falls commonly into the hands of statesmen, instruments strong in texture, and by reason of their rudeness not liable to sudden impressions, may be the best. That it is which we mean when we declare that a scrupulous man is impractical in politics. But the same man may at various periods of his life, and on various days at the same period, be scrupulous and unscrupulous, impractical and practical, as the circumstances of the occasion may affect him. At one moment the rule of simple honesty will prevail with him. Fiat justitia ruat coelum. Si fractus illabatur, orbis impavidum feriunt ruinae. At another he will see the necessity of a compromise for the good of the many. He will tell himself that if the best cannot be done, he must content himself with the next best. He must shake hands with the imperfect, as the best way of lifting himself up from a bad way toward a better. In obedience to his very conscience he will temporise, and finding no other way of achieving good, will do even evil that good may come of it. Rem si possis recte, si non quocunque modo rem. In judging of such a character as this, a hard and fast line will certainly lead us astray. In judging of Cicero, such a hard and fast line has too generally been used. 
he was a man singularly sensitive to all influences. It must be admitted that he was a vein, turning on a pivot finer than those on which statesmen have generally been made to work. He had none of the fixed purpose of Caesar, or the unflinching principle of Cato. They were men cased in brass, whose feelings nothing could hurt. They suffered from none of those inward flutterings of the heart, doubtful aspirations, human longings, sharp sympathies, dreams of something better than this world, fears of something worse, which make Cicero so like a well-bred, polished gentleman of the present day. It is because he has so little like a Roman that he is, of all the Romans, the most attractive. Still there may be doubt whether, with all the intricacies of his character, his career was such as to justify a further biography at this distance of time. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? asks Hamlet, when he finds himself stirred by the passion thrown into the bare recital of an old story by an itinerant player. What is Cicero to us of the nineteenth century that we should care so much for him as to read yet another book? Nevertheless, Hamlet was moved, because the tale was well told. There is matter in the earnestness, the pleasantness, the patriotism, and the tragedy of the man's life to move a reader still, if the story could only be written of him as it is felt. The difficulty lies in that, and not in the nature of the story. The period of Cicero's life was the very turning point of civilization and government in the history of the world. At that period of time the world as we know it was Rome. Greece had sunk, the Macedonian Empire had been destroyed. The kingdoms of the East, whether conquered or even when conquering, as was Parthia for a while, were barbaric, outside the circle of cultivation, and to be brought into it only by the arms and influence of Rome. During Caesar's career Gaul was conquered, and Britain, with what was known of Germany, supposed to be partly conquered. The subjugation of Africa and Spain was all but completed. Letters, too, had been or were being introduced. Cicero's use of language was so perfect that it seems to us to have been almost necessarily the result of a long-established art of Latin literature. But, in truth, he is the earliest of the prose writers of his country with whose works we are familiar. Excepting Varro, who was born but ten years before him, no earlier Latin prose writer has left more than a name to us, and the one work by which Varro is at all known, the De Re Rustica, was written after Cicero's death. Lucretius, whose language we regard as almost archaic, so unlike is it to that of Virgil or Horace, was born eight years after Cicero. In a great degree Cicero formed the Latin language, or produced that manipulation of it which has made it so graceful in prose and so powerful a vehicle of thought. That which he took from any Latin writer he took from Terence, and it was then, just then, that there arose in Rome that unpremeditated change in its form of government which resulted in the self-assumed dictatorship of Caesar and the usurpation of the empire by Augustus. The old Rome had had kings. Then the name and the power became odious, the name to all the citizens, no doubt, but the power simply to the nobility who grudged the supremacy of one man. The kings were abolished, and an oligarchy was established under the name of a republic, with its annual magistrates, at first its two consuls, then its praetors and others, and occasionally a dictator, as some current event demanded a concentration of temporary power in a single hand for a certain purpose. The republic was no republic as we understand the word, 
nor did it ever become so, though there was always going on a perpetual struggle to transfer the power from the nobles to the people, in which something was always being given or pretended to be given to the outside class. But so little was as yet understood of liberty, that as each plebeian made his way up into high place and became one of the magistrates of the state, he became also one of the oligarchical faction. There was a continued contest, with a certain amount of good faith on each side, on behalf of the so-called republic, but still a contest for power. This became so continued that a foreign war was at times regarded as a blessing, because it concentrated the energies of the state, which had been split and used by the two sections, by each against the other. It is probably the case that the invasion of the Gauls in earlier days, and later on the Second Punic War, threatening as they were in their incidents to the power of Rome, provided the Republic with that vitality which kept it so long in existence. Then came Marius, dominant on one side as a tribune of the people, and Sylla as aristocrat on the other, and the civil wars between them, in which, as one prevailed or the other, Rome was mastered. How Marius died and Sylla reigned for three bloody, fatal years is outside the scope of our purpose, except in this, that Cicero saw Sylla's proscriptions, and made his first essay into public life hot with anger at the dictator's tyranny. End of chapter 1, part 1